Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Even or Odds podcast. I am your host, Mason, and I'm joined by my co-host, Trey. Hey, Trey, everybody. how you doing? I'm all right. I'm glad to hear that, Trey. So, Trey, we wanted to start off with kind of talking about what this podcast is going to be. We've got a pick two, which is our top ten cards from Guilds of Ravnica, done in a fun way. We're going to do later in the show, but we really want to kind of spend a little bit of time talking about who we are and what we want to do with the podcast. So, do you mind if I give them a little spiel? Spiels are good. I'm pro spiel. All right. I like it. It's also a fun word. So the reason we did this podcast is twofold. One, me and Trey are friends who play test locally together in Nashville, Tennessee, and we grind the PPTQ and RPTQ scene. Trey here has played one pro tour, and he'll go more into that later in the episode, and I haven't got to play one yet. Um, but we want to make a podcast because we're friends and we talk about magic all the time, and we were lucky enough to have constructed criticism let us guest host as, pod, uh, as a guest on their podcast. And we were on the podcast, when we were done, we were like, man, we really like this, and it seemed like people liked it too, so let's try doing this with a, really a focus on PBTQ and RPTQs, because there are a lot of podcasts out there that are a lot of help. There's Pro Points, Game, Constructive Criticism, uh, Grind, MTG Grindcast, all those podcasts are great, but a lot of them really focus on like GPs and SCGs, and it's... You know, while Constructive Criticism started as a podcast focused on PBTQs and RBTQs, those guys have really blown up, and they're really focused on Pro Tours and GPs now, and it's a lot harder to get that kind of feel. So we really felt like we wanted a show that we would want to listen to that's talked about, you know, the PBTQ and RPTQ grind. So that's kind of what this podcast is going to be about. Yeah, it's just an interesting thing, right? Like, you, those players are all great. They have incredible insights, and those things can translate over. But it's just that particular type of tournament grind is just a different type of system. Uh, and it's a different type of grind that you have to face as opposed to driving around to all these local events in order to try to get the qualification for the RPTQ and then sweating those limited number of invites to try to get to the scene uh, that all of those other podcast hosts are playing at. Yeah. And, you know, we definitely think even if you're like at the PPTQ and RPTQ level, you should definitely check out all those shows we said before. They're all going to help you. But there are things that, you know, are specific to this kind of level of play that we're at. And, you know, and the hope would be that, you know, our podcast would grow with us. But, you know, we really do want to focus on that because we feel like that's an area that just doesn't get talked about a lot. And we feel like that's where so many people are. And, you know, especially me, when I first started really grinding, I guess, a year and a half now, a year and a half ago now, which is crazy to think about. The only show I could find like that was Constructive Criticism, and I loved it. But, you know, with Michael and Matt and them and Spencer, they've kind of grown, grown up, and we really just kind of want to slide on into that spot. So, I'm excited for this show. Trey, do you want to talk to the people about your kind of history in Magic, uh, and then we'll kind of move on from there? Sure. Uh, I started playing Magic in 1994 uh, with the release of Revised, so I, I've been playing this game for a really long time. Um, Since I was one. <laughs> so that's a different dynamic we've got. Uh, old Man Winter over here for, with uh, young blood, uh, Mason Clark. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I started playing uh, heavily competitively in about 2007 at Lorwyn, uh, focused primarily on the Star City circuit at that time, um, had a success on that, uh, several top eights, um, competing in the Invitationals and those types of things. Um, and then I moved a couple of years ago on to trying to focus on PPTQ, RPTQs, and then also the, the Pro Tour and GP circuit. So um, that's where my focus shifted to. And then I was fortunate enough last year to compete in my first Pro Tour uh, with Eighth of Revolt. All right, dude. I'm going to tell you this. I didn't tell you on CC because it wasn't our show. That was two years ago now. Jeez. Time flies. Uh, time flies. Yeah. Anyway, it was great. I went to Dublin and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it, it was great. It was just, it, it blows my mind because like, it, it's so fresh and I know how much it means to you. So it feels like it was just the other day, but it's like, dude, that set's rotating. Yeah. Like, 
it's oh. basically two years ago now, <laughs> which is crazy to think about, to say the least. Um, but yeah, so, you know, Trey kind of talked about it. I've been playing, I started playing Magic. Uh, my girlfriend actually taught me at the time to play in Gate Crash, and I did the pre-release with her. And then I played uh, this for, like, at a local level, and I did, like, a PBTQ every now and again until, I think, gosh, a year and a half ago. So that would have been Amonkhet, I think, was, like, the when I first started to really try, or maybe end of Aether Revolt, early Amonkhet, so that time, that kind of time frame. And since then, I've been really grinding uh, PBTQs and RPTQs. I've been lucky enough to qualify for every RPTQ since I started trying. I actually just qualified yesterday for the uh, next one on the last PBTQ. Yeah. So <laughs> keeping keeping the streak alive. So it's definitely a thing to, uh, you know, we're going to talk about that, like winning PBTQs and, RPD- and getting to the RPTQs and stuff. But, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have some okay finishes at some GPs, and I've top-aided two of these RPTQs and missed Pro Tour invites at one of them. And then somebody... Some luck sack beat me in the last one. Some old guy's been playing since like '94. Yeah, yeah, Just, yeah. Uh, you know the type. <laughs> Washed up has beens. <laughs> the artistic type. <laughs> I think they go by Trey. I just can't stand those kind of people. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know they're rough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, I think that's kind of you know, that's all that I really wanted to say when it comes to the podcast. And I felt like we should, you know kind of talk about who we are with the show there. Trace, anything you want to talk about before we move on to our pick two? I, I do want to just just briefly mention something that, you know, like I said, I, I played in a lot of different tournament series. And, and one of the things that's really interesting to me about, like, switching from those types of things to the PPTQ system and getting into playing those type of tournaments. You know, when I was playing on the Star City Circuit or I was playing in Grand Prix or any of those types of things, like, if you top-aided the event, it's like such felt like such an accomplishment that 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 was kind of the goal and you know with pptqs or rptqs that's generally not good enough right like in order to get the the thing that you're doing and achieve the goal that you're getting to you have to win the tournament and it's incredible that the the shift in mindset that was necessary in order to compete in those tournaments even though they're generally smaller um there's a lot of local competitors it, you know you have to have a different mindset to play in those events because you have to go into the event looking to win it and that was a really interesting like mental transition from playing in those other types of tournaments to playing in these type of tournaments. Yeah, it's it's almost, you know, I don't want to go too far off on this. I think I, I think we talked about our second episode being something about this, but it's almost a bad mindset, right? Where kind of like the good mindset of magic is focusing on like playing well and making good play decisions. But at a PPDQ, you kind of need to focus on like also making sure that you're staying sharp and staying on top of it to win the tournament, right? Because it's so easy to, you know, fall into that trap of, oh, I made top eight. That's great. But it's like, all right, that's good. Let's close out now, you know? Right. Yeah, it's a very weird, almost contradictory to like everything you hear about other things, right? Where it's like 11-3 is great at a GP and it definitely is. But, you know, if you like barely missed top eight of a PPDQ, you wasted your weekend, you know? (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah. It's very, very very weird. All you you got to do was play the best game ever made with your friends. It was a real waste of time. (laughs) Oh, it was terrible. You could have been playing so many other games. You could have been on Dead Cells or doing something else. Who knows? But (laughs) no, but, you know, you get it. Um, yeah, so yeah, I'm really excited to talk more in depth about that, and I can already tell like I'm starting to want to talk more about that. So let's let's push that for episode two. That's gonna be the whole thing. But this week we're gonna talk about Guilds of Ravnica. Woo! So you know, in cl- we figured LR is so successful because they started when a 
set was announced that you know that's what makes a good podcast. So we're starting with this set, you know, just to copy them. It seems like the right thing to do, right, Trey? <laughs> if you want to have a successful <laughs> magic podcast, copying LR seems like a good thing to do. <laughs> Yeah, and you just wait for like what's clearly going to be an all-time classic set, which you'll just know instinctively because you're a great podcast. That's how people know too. And then you do a set review on it, and then you make it your own thing, and you reinvent the set review process just like we did today. <laughs> so, Trey, do you want <laughs> We innovated it. It's the best. Do you want to talk about our set review process for uh, today's episode? Right. So instead of going through and reviewing just every card within the context of Constructed Magic for the set – um, because I'm sure that you guys would like to do something with the next three hours of your lives other than just listen to us talk. Um, we have broken it down into Mason and I have each picked two cards across five different categories. Um, and that we're going to talk about those cards in, in those categories and, and kind of get an idea of the set and the direction of those things based on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not, it's not going to be like, you know, other shows, we're talking about our five favorite cards. We're gonna, we are going to talk about our favorite cards. We are going to talk about the best cards, but we're going to cover a lot of different categories and a lot of cards on those categories and really try and go deeper in those categories and not feel so pressed for time like you do with a top 10 list where you feel like, gosh, there's 20 cards we have to talk about. This really gives us time to breathe and talk about these cards. And uh, we, we have some fun topics too, Trey. So should we just hop right into it with our pick two? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so the first, our first category in the pick two were what were they thinking? So <laughs> this is a category where it's like, what were they thinking? And I have an honorable mention for this that I didn't want to tell you about. The naming convention for split cards. Oh, what were yeah. they thinking? It's so bad. I, I get it. A lot of the split card names that are good are gone. And it's, by the way, great name right there. I don't even think that's a card. Uh, but they're gone, right? Like you can't use them. But this one is so bad where it's like the first three letters are the same. I literally yeah, it, can't handle it. It makes it almost impossible to ever remember what the name of those cards are. Yeah. I Honestly, I just call them by whatever I think the better half is. And I remind people there's another half. Like, honestly, like we're going to talk about one of the cards later, Explosion, in one of the sets. And I'm like, yeah, I just call it Explosion because I literally can't remember the other half. And it's so confusing and hard to say, especially with someone with dyslexia like me, where it's just like all the letters and the numbers. It's can't handle it. <laughs> but uh, my my number uh, my first card for the what were they thinking that isn't a split card thing is Devious Cover Up. So Devious Cover Up is two generic mana, blue, blue for an instant. It says counter target spell. If that spell is countered this way, exile it instead of putting it into its owner's graveyard. You may shuffle up to four target cards from your graveyard into your library. So the reason this is my what were they thinking is this card kind of creates a play pattern that requires you not to have a win con. Because if you have two or three devious cover-ups, maybe even four if it's your only win condition, right? You literally can never deck because this card doesn't... It feels like a card that should have said exile this upon resolution, but you just return a different devious cover-up every time. So, you know, me and some local guys have been trying to play with some new standard cards to get a feel for things. And I was like, what if I just played like four Teferi and a couple devious cover-up in every kill and counter spell? And it leads to some very unfun play patterns. So I had to put this on the list because... Even if it doesn't take off, I think it's kind of scary to put this kind of card into the set. Trey, what do you think of Devious Cover-Up? I mean, the number of times throughout the history of Magic that they have had to ban cards, not because of power level, not because of uh, anything else, but just because they make tournaments take longer, <laughs> it keeps happening, and then they keep printing them. So I don't know why they made this card 
at the same time that Nexus of Fate is legal, that they're going to try to do this with Teferi, where people are just going to have win, no win condition decks that just try to drag the game out as long as possible and make your opponent deck. That is asking for more bans in standard because not for power level, but because it just makes a miserable tournament experience. You <laughs> see, it's funny to me because I think this card was targeted at Nexus of Fate because it <laughs> exiles the spell. So it can't, like I was playing against our friend Ellison, shout out to Ellison, uh, and he couldn't play Nexus of Fates because if I countered them with a devious cover up, he's just out a Nexus of Fate. And then right, I'll return but... those devious cover ups. <laughs> Yeah, but that's so the like, problem, right? Like the language they tacked onto the end of that counter spell to make it like yeah. they felt like it needed to cost four mana and just four mana counter spell exile is not enough for four mana. So we'll also make it just be its own win condition also for four mana to make it go from an answer to Nexus of Fate to a miserable card. Yeah, I almost wonder too if it's a thing where like play design was testing draft and they were like, there's a little bit of this unfun thing that happens where maybe they're decking too much because of surveil. So they added this, like they had a four mana counter spell for Nexus of Fate and like, oh, we'll put this text on it and it will matter for limited, right? That way you don't deck or whatever. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and and instead what it's done is it's like changed popper. So now blue black teachings just has no win conditions. <laughs> and now it's like standard, you can, it seems, I mean, like obviously like, I don't know for sure, but it seems like it's something that you can have in your back pocket if the format ever gets too mid-rangey. It's like, I'm going to play no win conditions, and I'm going to deck you, and I'm going to win 101 every single round. So, yeah, that I don't have anything else to say about Devious cover-up. Uh, it, it literally, though, it blows my mind. It's literally like the what were they thinking, and it, it could just be a thing where maybe it's too extreme and I'm being hyperbolic, but man, what were they thinking? Yeah, it, seem, it seems like a particularly problematic card. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my my first what were you thinking card goes in a little bit different direction. Uh, my card is Thousand Year Storm, uh, oh, which God. is four generic mana, a blue red enchantment uh, that says whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, copy it for each other instant and sorcery spell that you've cast before it this turn. You may choose new targets for the copies. Um, I. What were they thinking? Um, I, I can't imagine what the purpose of having a six-mana enchantment that does nothing unless you already still have enough instants and sorceries in your hand at that point in the game to take a turn off and then cast multiple instants and sorceries the next turn in order to have an effect. Uh, this just... The entire design of this seems preposterous. It's like, what if we made like an Aetherflux Reservoir that was strictly worse and didn't do anything? Yeah, it's weird, right? Because it is like a storm payoff card. And it's odd to me, too, because like in Commander, it's like you're at six mana and like this is what you're doing. You're like setting like because my head is like, oh, that's a Commander card. But it's like, I don't even know if it's that good in Commander. It's just like you tap out and someone else is like, kiki-jiki you. <laughs> right, yeah, it costs like, so much mana. <laughs> like, how are you going to get to that point in the game and have a bunch of instants and sorceries in your hand? And there's no mana reduction on anything that you're casting. So, like, you have to cast multiple spells in a turn for it to matter. And then you get a lot of copies of those spells. But, like, you still have to pay full mana for all of those things. Like, yeah. So the draw spells in standard are all very expensive. So like it's like, okay, I don't have a lot of cards, but I can cast a draw spell, and then I can cast the spells I draw off that spell. It's like, with what? Like, are you just going to be playing like a bunch of like gilded lotuses and things in order to try to power out your Thousand Year Storm deck? I, it, it just makes no sense to me at all. 
Um, it, it's going to be a completely dead card, and and uh, there's going to be a lot of feel bads opening packs with the thousand year storm. Saffron Olive is going to make so much money off that. <laughs> Listen, they understand MTG Goldfish is a pivotal part of the community, and they need people going there every day. It takes a lot of work off Watsy to release deck lists and stuff like that in a cool format. That's why they have uh, this card in the set, because Saffron Olive lost Panharmonica, and he's like, what am I going to do? <laughs> All right. Oh. <laughs> oh man, my, it's funny that you picked the storm card. And then I picked a card that's also a storm card for my last. What were they thinking? And this is Mimnark. I believe that's how you say it. Mimnark betrayal. I thought it was Mimnark, but now I'm believing it's not. It's one blue black for a sorcery. It says exile all cards from your opponent's graveyard. You may cast those cards this turn, and you may spend mana as though or mana of any type to cast those spells. So you can cast them with Eldrazi mana. Uh, at the beginning of your next end step, if any of those cards remained exile, return them to their owner's graveyard. Exile Memnarch's betrayal. I believe that's Memnarch. I'm not. I don't know how you say that for sure, but th- there's so much that's weird about this card to me. So the first thing that's weird yeah. is it exiles. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. go ahead. You know, it's there's a very old card called Yagmoth's Will that does essentially this effect, but for your graveyard. Yeah, and that that was. <laughs> so weird to and talk i'm sorry so that that card's legitimately good and one of the most busted cards of all time because you can build your deck around its effect but with yeah. this card your opponent has to have a deck where that would be useful um which you have no control over prior to sitting down so it seems very strange that this card's going to be valuable yeah, so, like, even – I want to look at it, like, a, from a game design perspective because I believe in, a, like, two different lives. I would have been a game designer. So you exile all the cards in your opponent's graveyard, right? But they have to go back if you don't cast them. So you can't actually put them in exile. So you have to, like, kind of lay them out in a mat in front of you. And then you can play them. And then the ones you don't play go back to the graveyard. So it's not even like it's like a weird, like, I think this card would be kind of cool if it just exiled the whole graveyard. And it's like, listen, it's also a graveyard hate spell. Then, like, blue-black mirrors, it's a card advantage engine. It, like, doubles up in your uh, sideboard slots, right? Like, that seems like a cool thing. And that's, like, kind of what I think this card's trying to be. I think this card's trying to be, like, this is cool design space, and we need a Demir Mythic Rare. And it's also, like, a value card for, like, those kind of matchups. But does it, it just doesn't... Them, does it exile them until the end of turn? Until the end of the next turn. It exiles them until the until, end of the next the, turn. Of the, until the, uh, sorry, at the beginning of the next end step. Okay. So you could technically, if you if you quicken this, you could have it for a whole turn cycle or whatever. But right. yes. Okay. So the only thing that could come up is that if you can, the, the only thing that can happen is that you exile the cards as opposed to just having them from the graveyard is that your opponent can't then interact with their graveyard in some way to prevent you from casting the spells. Um, yeah. Yeah which is something that could potentially come up. And then two, if you're playing this in like modern or something else, you could have cards that like deal with exile cards, like process cards. Like you could like cast this and then that creates exile cards. And then you could like cast your wasteland strangler to exile those cards. To, Who uh, cares? I Let know. Them do it. I know. <laughs> Let them do I, it. I'm just trying to think of some reason for any of these things to exist, and those are the only <laughs> possibilities that I can think of where those things come up. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that they wanted it where your opponent couldn't like cast a graveyard's hate spell of some kind on themselves on the... to prevent but, you but from can... using this. 
but they can like there's like a silent gravestone like pops to remove all the graveyards so you can still like interact i don't know like i get it like it is supposed to be Yawgmoth's will, but like a cool design twist that makes it so it's not busted, but it's cool for new players to play with, right? And probably a bomb unlimited, right? Like if you like have a control deck unlimited and it goes really late, if you can play like two spells from the graveyard, this might be something that you like sideboard in. Yeah, I, I, I get like that's probably it, it feels a lot of like the cool flashy slots and does cool things for brewers and whatnot. I, I just still can't get over it. We exile the cards, but we have to track the cards that we exiled that aren't exiled with the other cards, and then we exile the spells I play, and then they go back to your graveyard. No, I mean, the, the whole thing is preposterous. The entire <laughs> yeah. thing is preposterous. I don't know what they were thinking. But, I mean, Trey, even, your even in the idea <laughs> of me trying to think of ways that it's going to matter is that I had to go pretty deep to even come up with situations where it was going to be important that it exiles those things. Yeah, also, right? And, like... Sorry. It also seems crazy to me to print this card at a time that Dire Fleet Daredevil is legal. Like, and that card barely sees any play as it is. And it's like, that card's a 2-1 first strike that does a lot of the same things as this card. It's like just strictly better than this in most scenarios. So I can't yeah. really understand what the point is. Yeah, I, I will say that one last thing. If you're playing EDH and one of your friends has like a Storm deck and you're the blue-black deck, put this in your deck and get them. And then like... Tweet at Mason E. Clark with it. I need to know. Because that's what I want to see with this card. I want to see your opponent fail to storm. And then you're like, let me show you how it's done. And you pick up their grid and you do it. <laughs> that's what I want from this card. I, I mean, oh, man. I like the art on this card. All right, whatever. I'm, I'm off Mimnarch's Betrayal. All right. What's your last? What were they thinking, Trey? Um, uh, this one I imagine you're probably going to fight with me about. But for me... Uh, I can't understand why they reprinted a choice card. So my card is Risk Factor, oh <laughs> uh, which is red and two generic mana. It's an instant. Target opponent may have Risk Factor deal four damage to them. If they don't, you draw three cards. So uh, this is very similar to an old card called Browbeat, um, which did substantively the same thing and was a part of a cycle of cards that had these choices for your opponent. Every time they print a card like this, people get excited about it for one reason or another, and then far too many people play it. I have no idea why. Uh, generally, giving your opponent control over what your spells do means that your spells don't do anything that's useful for the things that you want them to do. These cards are horrible. I don't know why they thought it was a good idea to bring this type of effect back. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> I have this in one of the positive categories later, and I, I have a very good argument for it. So I'm going to save my argument, and I'm going to defend it from a design standpoint. Because like like I said, in another life, I'd be a game designer, okay? It was seriously a thing I thought, I thought about setting for a long time. I think, and they talked about this on Twitter before, of having cards where you have a level-up moment. Of you're like, oh, it isn't good for this thing to happen for my opponent. We're noticing there's a card that's better than another card, and having that discovery moment is a good thing to have in Magic. And having a card like this that seems, in theory, like low risk to have in a format and has that discovery is cool to have, and you have to have some number of rares that are junk, just by default, right? Like the way the pack system works in selling cards, not all rares can be hits. Some have to have be bad cards, and you have to have bad cards in sets. So even if I thought this card was good or bad, I think... That's kind of the reason they print it. And I think the choice mechanic is very fun. Like, on a kitchen table level, I mean, like, you know, 
people look down kitchen player ta- like player player tables a lot because like they normally don't think super strategic about it, but it kind of does promote that kind of play pattern for those people, right? It's like, wait, what matters more? Instead of my card does this, my card does this, my card does this. It's like, oh, I can like make these choices. So I, I think it's cool. That's I, I'm going to go to bat. That's an all very optimistic way to look at it, as opposed to uh, making good players <laughs> win more games because they don't play risk factor. <laughs> I, you're going to lose the risk factor in standard. Okay. Now, it might just be the first week or so when people are still on it, but the fact that card has flashback is like something to keep an eye out on. That's all I'm going to say for now, because it's later in the sh- like much later in the show. If it was the next card, our next card is sleepers. It's not on my sleeper list. It's higher up. Trey. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> if it was on the sleepers, which we're about to do, uh, I would go to bat. But I'm, I'm pocketing that one. Uh, let's you know just, why? Because it's just... got jump start. I'm going to jump start this conversation later tonight. Oh man, I, I feel browbeat right. already. All right. Would you like to start off with the sleepers, Trey? Uh, sure. Um, my first sleeper card um, is a card that I cannot believe I am not hearing anything about. It seems insane to me that there is not hype around this card. And that is Azani Thousand-Eyed. Oh, this, is, All right. this is black, black, green, green, too generic. It's a 2-3 legendary elf shaman. Uh, it has Undergrowth, which is one of the new mechanics. It says, when Azani Thousand-Eyed enters the battlefield, create a 1-1 black and green insect creature token for each creature card in your graveyard. Then it has an activated ability of black-green, sacrifice another creature, gain a life, and draw a card. Um, I think this card is going to be insane. In the limited amount of testing that we have uh, looked at and done with this, this card is going to um be just a huge player in standard i think it's going to be something that just takes over games because there's so much value coming off of this i know that generally six mana for a two three is way below rate like there's no doubt about that but it's like costed it's, high it's enough. not two three <laughs> <laughs> but it's not yeah, two but three it's like, that's a trick <laughs> yeah but it's like it's costed high enough that the undergrowth ability actually matters, right? Because there's a lot of the stuff that I've seen with undergrowth, if it's costed aggressively, it's like, okay, I haven't had generally time to have things in my graveyard, right? But, like, mm-hmm. if you're playing a deck that has this, you can trade creatures aggressively in combat, you can do all kinds of things because you know you're coming back in over the top as soon as you hit this Azani. Like, also, it has the sack ability on it, too, which just seems insane. Like, normally having things that have repetitive sack abilities for value... And the, the fact that the sack ability for value is draw a card and gain life, like this is just going to create nightmares for your opponents in combat, uh, particularly in any type of mid-range mirrors. Um, it's got some similarities to like, uh, you know, Ishkana um, from previous standard, and that was a defining card for that entire format. Um, this card costs like 59 cents right now to buy. That will not stay that way. <laughs> like just this card yeah, maybe- is insane. <laughs> Maybe in the future this needs to be called under underpriced or something, but yeah, I don't know. Like, <laughs> that's a good point about the card. It is like less than a dollar to get two of them. Yeah, yeah. Like I just I, don't I, understand uh, how there's not any hype on this card. I think it's going to be very good. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in Azani, and you know, a little spoiler for later. Azani is one of my hits, which would be our last topic. I, I think it's a card that's going to define standard, uh, and. 
if it doesn't define now, it, it will eventually. It's one of those things where, like, okay, maybe these other cards are overpowering it. It just we need to have a rotation, right? I, I'm thinking that's going to happen in a lot of cards, the Guild of Ravnica. But this one, I'm pretty sure, is going to hit immediately. There are a lot of weird things you don't notice about Azani, too, like when you haven't played with it. Like, for example, the activated ability, you can respond to your own trigger in the super late game. So I've played games where I had it trigger on the undergrowth, like trigger on the stack, sack two Dusk Legion Zealots, get two more insects. So I basically <laughs> paid 10 mana for Azani, got the same number of insects, gained two life, and drew two cards. <laughs> so saying, like, card, the oh. card is silly. It's got a, an extremely high power level for a six mana 2-3. It puts yeah. a lot of power on the board and does a lot of things. Yeah, and the only thing that really can ever keep this card in check in my mind, besides obviously counter spells and wraths, is Goblin Chain Whirler. And it, I, honestly, I think Chain Whirler might see play because of this card in March of the Multitudes, which I'm not sure if we'll talk about later or not, so I don't want to do that. I know you like that card a lot. But I think those, like Azani and March, will make Goblin Chain Whirler a card that has to see play. Because I think those yeah, cards are both cards that are over the top. You know, just briefly on that, like it almost seems like, you know, because they often are, are they're, they're obviously designing sets far in advance that this card coming might be a reason that Chain Whirler was in the previous set. <laughs> like mm -hmm. they're like, this card's too powerful. There has to be answers to it. Like that they're like, because they're always designing like sets in advance. Right. And that, and yeah. they know what that standard environment's going to look like to a certain extent. And that like having these answers and these hate cards for X1s. Like, yeah, like, otherwise, Azani is just going to take over everything. So you want to hear my MTG conspiracy theory? Yeah, why not get one in, you know? All right. So I believe Rampaging Ferocidon was supposed to do that. Yeah. I think Rampaging Ferocidon was supposed to check the token decks from last format, right, which it did, and it was supposed to check these, these token decks, right? But it got banned. And when it got banned, Goblin Chain Whirler was a weaker statted body originally, uh, oh, I think Goblin Chain Whirler was a first strike with 3-3 three, three and didn't have that ETB. And they're like, we need something that to check tokens. Right. And I think that's why Goblin Chain Whirler is so good. I think it didn't get enough playtesting. That's yeah. that's my well, MTG conspiracy theory. Because it, I mean, it would line up, too, where there's enough time for that to happen. And they've right. talked about in the past cards, like, that's how Umazawa's Jitte and Skull Clamp kind of got broke. Was <laughs> things happened, we changed them last second, and they got put to print. That's another another uh, common thing that happens that they seem to uh, do a bunch, and every time it goes bad, they still just keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes that, that's part of the problem with like the physical media, right? So oh, yeah. you have to print these things in advance. So there there are prices to pay for this great game, but uh, you don't have to pay the price for this card because it's also under a dollar. My number uh, one for the sleeper hit is expansion ex uh, explosion. I can't even say it right when I'm reading it, Trey. I hate the name <laughs> expansion. So let's, let's talk about expansion first. So expansion is hybrid, hybrid, is it mana? So blue, red, blue, red. Uh, you can copy target instant or sorcery with spell converted mana cost four or less, and you may choose new uh, targets for the copy. So I'm going to talk about that part real quick here. That in itself is a card we've seen in the past for that mana cost, and sometimes a little bit more. And it's had like fringe applications and combo applications right and it's like a cool card that really speaks to johnny's right it's like oh like you try to counter sell me and then i win the counter spell works i have expansion but if you try to bolt my creature i bolt you and kill you right there's a lot of cool things you can do with this card yeah and there, like, there have been decks and whole standard environments that were built off of like that t twin cast reverberate fork type effect like yeah it, it has been a staple card in some standard environments mm -hmm. what uh, like the biggest thing that's happened to me for that half is my opponent had a Planeswalker. They tried to Vraska Contempt my Teferi, and I was like, I'll expansion your Vraska's Contempt. Answer your Vraska. 
So like, <laughs> like things happen with this card, but I'm more interested in the back half, which is explosion, or as I call it, Sphinx's revelation. That's a fireball. Uh, explosion <laughs> is X blue, blue, red, red. So it's four mana with X. And it's an instant. It says, Explosion deals X damage to any target. So, creatures, planeswalkers, players. Then it has another line, which is weird. Target player draws X cards. So, there's a lot to unpack there. So, the easy comparison is, this is Sphinx Revelation that does damage, right? Instead of gaining life and drawing cards, you deal damage and draw cards. So, it still kind of rewards that kind of play pattern that Sphinx's Rev did, except with a more faster paced gameplay to it right because instead of like when you take over the game you six drive for six sphinx drive for six right and you have 12 life and all these cards and you can never lose the game you're actually killing them so the game will end at a certain point right but even beyond that it weirdly targets players for when it comes to drawing cards so in like control mirrors when life isn't really affected if like it comes to deck out this card matters and it matters against the fairy tucking itself so you can make like if your opponent tries to loop tucking to fairy if you have enough lands to make them draw a card, because maybe they emblem late, you can actually kill them even though they have an infinite loop going. Same with the uh, cover-up card we talked about before. And then the fact that it does damage means that you're able to play a control game plan where if you're not just about looping that counter spell we talked about before with devious cover-up, you can play a control deck that's like four Teferis and like two or three of this. And one of the things that we found is that if they A tier Teferi and Vrasic attempt your Teferi a lot, it leads to a lot of draw-go game plans. And it's very easy to explosion someone for 8, explosion someone for 10, and then they die. So it's a card that I think has real potential to be a control finisher. And I think the expansion combined with the explosion give this card enough flexibility, enough ways to win the game and answer threats. Because it can also kill Planeswalkers too. Like it does just enough that it's going to make it in. Trey, what do you think about expansion yeah, I, explosion? I, I think the card is very interesting, and I think that there's a lot of like power built into it. I don't know if I'm sold yet as to whether or not it's a main deckable card um, mm-hmm. in that color pair. It might be, um, but until we see kind of how the metagame shows like shapes up, um, I don't know whether or not you're going to be getting enough value off the front end to to warrant it. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe it is. But you know, maybe it'll be a one or two of in, in some of these decks, and the, that'll be the way they want to go. But I think that certainly, like you're talking about in control mirrors and everything else, this card's going to be insane, absolutely insane. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say almost the way I started to think about it is imagine if you play like a Lyra main deck, right? And you really play Lyra because it's a 5 5 body, right? And sometimes you lose games because it's just a 5 5 body that's stuck in your hand, you miss land drops. The expansion lets you use this card in other modes and lets your win condition be more versatile. And with cards like Devious Cover Up, it could also be that we don't even need to ferry, which I know is crazy. And I, I don't believe that, but it could be a thing where maybe all we need is cover ups and explosions to win. So Just I, I think like the expansion. A straight is it deck? Yeah, like a straight is it deck, right? Or maybe an is it deck that slightly splashes another color. But like I think expansion has some real applications. Like, you know, a lot of things that happen to like I've been stuck on lands and my opponent casts Notion Ring, which is the new Read the Bones, and I'm like, copy it. Right. I'll surveil too, right? Like, it lets you get out of situations. You know, I've played against aggro decks, and they're like, lightning strike you to, like, you know, end a turn before they play a Flame of Keld. I'm like, copy it, kill your creature. Right. right. Kill your Rabble Master. So, I think it's flexible enough that it has a shot, and I think without that flexibility, it wouldn't be good enough. If it was just Sphinx's Rev that was a fireball, I don't think it would be good, but I think together it has a shot. So, what's your next sleeper? I think we talked enough about this card. Yeah, um... Uh, my next sleeper uh, goes hand in hand in the uh, decks that want Azani, which is also a split card, uh, which is Ooh. find 
frail find finality uh find the front half of it is a sorcery that's uh black or green black or green return up to two target creature cards from your graveyard to your hand uh and then the second half of it is finality which is black green and four generic you may put two plus one plus one counters on a creature you control then all creatures get minus four minus four until end of turn um I, I think that this card is also going to be very good. Uh, the value that you get and the grindy nature of this card fits really well into the uh, the Golgari decks that are going to be coming around, I believe. Uh, it's going to be an absolute nightmare for any kind of mid-range matchups. Uh, and part of it is, too, is that you know we don't have necessarily the benefit of all of just great sweepers that we would have had traditionally with Black. Uh, and the fact that the back half of this gives you like a, a languish type effect that could allow you to save a creature while also sweeping everything for your opponent, uh, it, it's going to create a lot of blowouts, I think. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, this is one of the cards that, like, when we talked about the Azani deck, when me and Ellison, shout out to Ellison again, like, we're coming and talking to you about, it was like, yeah, Azani Find Finality kind of blew us out of the water because the deck's very good at, like, staying alive and like do this give people a picture at home like you play branch walker jade light ranger dusk legions a lot those kind of cards that replace themselves civic wayfinder those things so it's very easy to stay alive and maybe your opponent starts to build a board up and that finality gives you a chance to like slam the door and then next turn azani or like azani and they put even more on board and you're like all right i'll finality my azani lives and then you know it's a it's a one it's an oh one for the turn but everything else dies yeah, it's yeah. very good. You know, Lang Languish saw a lot of play, you know, at the time that it was legal in the black control decks or in mid range type decks, and and there's not really another effect that's comparable to that right now for black, other than on the backside of this card. Um, well, there's there's the um, destroy all creatures to convert mana cost one, two, and three. Yeah, yeah. Return to soot. I think it's called. Yes. Um, yeah, which is good, but like this can kill like higher costed things, right? Like you know. Oh yeah. For um, sure. There's some five drops and six drops in this set that are you know four toughness or less, that you know are are seeming to fill some of those finisher slots that that this card can have a lot of things to do with. Like I don't know whether or not Under Realm Lich is good enough, but it is a four three that has indestructible, um, and this language type effect just doesn't care about that. That's very true. Yeah, I think the only thing that's going to hold back a fine finality personally is if the metagame is too hostile towards value, right? right? Does that make sense? Like, like if Teferi decks actually do well and the way to beat them is to play like these Boros and Sly decks and stuff to go underneath it, this deck might have a problem. Uh, like like a card like fine finality might just become a one or a two of. But even then, I think this card's insane. I love it. Yeah, I'm a big absolutely. Fan of fine finality. I, you know, I, I think the black green decks are going to grind people uh, into dust pretty easily. Well, easily is maybe a stretch, but I think it's going to be a lot of incremental value per turn, and then these kind of yeah. paymakers are the things that are going to really close the door. I'm going to let you know a secret, too. F uh, find finality in the mirror. When you buy back your Zonis, it's a mirror breaker. <laughs> huh? The too much house. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, for my last sleeper card of the set, I there's no way you would ever guess this card. I, I have, In fact, I haven't seen anyone talk about this card, and I've got a hyperbolic uh, statement for this card. Are you ready? I'm this ready. is the new Attuner with Aether, and it's better. All right, it's not better okay. than actual Attuner with Aether, but it is very close. To, I think it's good. So Flower and Flourish. So Flower is hybrid Celestia, so green or white. You search your library for a basic planes or a forest or planes, reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. And then Flourish is four 
Celestia, green and the white. And then I, the, oh my gosh, my phone moved it with the split cards. It's very hard to read. I hate this thing. It says creatures you control get plus two, plus two until end of turn. So it's a mini overrun for six mana. Yeah. So here's my history with Flower Flourish. With Flower, as I call it. I thought it said grab planes or forests, and I'm like, busted. It searches <laughs> up all the dual lands. <laughs> Insane. I'm going to always play this card. What were they thinking? Then I reread it, and I was like, oh, I'm a silly goose. Uh, but I still think that in a Selesnia deck, you want to play these, like, kind of four and five drop creatures a lot and i haven't figured out the exact way i think to build it and make it proper but i think flower does a good job of making sure you hit your land drops and the flourish back half i think is very real i think the fact that the celestian deck is either going to go kind of with a bunch of beefy mid-range creatures or have a lot of tokens i think the fact that if you're playing a token deck you don't want to miss your land drops because you want to march the multitudes so you're going to have that and then later you have this anthem that kills them and I think in the mid-rangey creature deck, you're like, want to make sure you can cast your hard-to-cast spells like uh, History of Benalia on Curve and your Steel Leaf Champions if you decide to go that route, right? Like, there are a lot of double-colored cards, like double-white, double-green. A lot of curves go three-drop double-white, four-drop double-green, three-drop double-white, right? So it can be kind of hard to cast your spells on Curve, and this fixes that while also giving you a late-game card that isn't embarrassing. It's not as good as the other two split cards, I think, like not even close. This one might not even hit. But I think it's going to do it. It, it. I'm willing to take a risk on it. So, Yeah, I, I think flourish. it's got a lot of interesting applications. And, you know, a, a card that I'm sure we'll talk about later, uh, Assassin's Trophy, um, you know, it's going to incentivize decks to play a lot more basics. And then this is a card that plays into that as well. Like if you're just playing more basic lands, streamlining your mana base and just getting value out of doing so. Yeah, 100%. I agree. And also, if you're trying to beat Assassin's Trophy's decks, going wide is a good way to do that. And having an Anthem... It's a good way to beat them. Probably yeah. an overrun, I should say. All right, well, that's going to do it for sleepers. Trey, do you want to start on the flops, or would you like me to? <laughs> uh, you can start I've, on the I've flop. got some flops. Let's do it. All right. So this this is back to game designer, Mason, from my armchair I'm in right now. This is Charnel Troll. One <laughs> black green creature troll. I feel like they're trolling me with this card. It's a 4-4. Big boy. He has trampled. Uh, he says, at the beginning of your upkeep, exile a creature card from your graveyard. If you do, uh, put a plus one, plus one counter on Charnel Troll. Otherwise, sacrifice it. Okay. You can play black, green, discarded creature card. Put a plus one, plus one counter on Charnel Troll. Here's the reason I don't like Charnel Troll. And it's a very, uh, some people would say, dumb reason. The Golgari's entire mechanic is called Undergrowth. It's all about getting creatures in the graveyard. And this card says, I mean, it essentially has like a weird backwards undergrowth, but it like counteracts with my other undergrowth cards. And I don't like it when there are cards that you put in the first set that work, they're supposed to work with your guild that work against it, right? Like this is a rare for Golgari that is just like a big idiot that works against what the other cards are trying to have me do, right? Like Azani, Fine Finality, Vraska, all those cards reward me for putting a lot of creatures in the graveyard. And Charnel Troll literally hurts me Hurts my other cards when I try and do that, right? Yep. And so at that point, he's not even a three drop. He's like a six or seven drop. And at that point, I'm not paying six or seven mana for this four, four. That honestly, Trey, I'm going to say it, is like an old man magic card. And this is the thing <laughs> I'm going to say a lot on magic. Is I listen to Trey and James Hess. Shout out to James Hess. Tell me about these old creatures in magic that were unbeatable. They're like, 
he had had a cumulative upkeep of only three and a green, but it was a four <laughs> four and it was huge. <laughs> it, it was unbeatable, and it's I'm like, God, that game sounds miserable. <laughs> yeah, that's how I think of Charnel Troll. Oh, so and uh, up until you insulted uh, my age for like no reason, <laughs> um, I was all with you on the <laughs> on the analysis on this. It just seems so weird. Like you introduce this new mechanic. You have all of these cards that work with this new mechanic, and then you give a rare slot to a card that completely decimates the entire game plan of that deck. I don't know why you would do that. Um, uh, yeah, I think the card is not very good uh, and doesn't really fit into the rest of the things that are going on. It's got a lot of text on it, so that's something. Yeah, I- I'm curious because it looks like a card that would be busted and limited until it's back to like it's like an old man magic card where you can't play it till the late game. So it's not really a three drop. And then if I'm discarding cards to keep this thing alive, I get explode like I get beat by like any kill spell. I, I just kind of yeah, wish I mean, you said undergrowth and like got plus one plus one counters when you played it and didn't have trample. Yeah, that's kind of what I want. That'd be cool. I, I, I wish it had other abilities, right? Like it, uh, plus one plus one counters are one thing, and making your guy bigger is one thing. But like if it had other abilities, you know, like a card like Mastercore or something like that that had taxed your resources heavily, then. Then it's something that might be interesting, but just just getting counters uh, or dying, I don't know that that's enough. There's lots of other big beefy things in green for uh, a lot less setup cost. Yeah, I wonder if it'd be too weird to have this card return a card from exile to the graveyard, or if that'd be almost too good at the chemistry's insight because that'd be kind of cool. But that's neither yeah. here or there. Yeah, Trey, what's your uh, flop? Uh, my first what's flop first is flop? a card that I really want to be good uh, i just don't think it is uh which is mission briefing uh aka a lot of people have been calling the new snapcaster mage easiest flop of my life <laughs> yeah uh so mission briefing is uh an instant it's blue blue surveil two then choose an instant or sorcery card in your graveyard and you can cast that card uh until end of turn now it is interesting that you get to surveil two first. So, like, you mm-hmm. could cast an instant or sorcery that will one of the cards that you had surveilled. Uh, but that's it. I just don't know that this card does enough. Um, you know, the difference between having a 2-1 body and not having a 2-1 body, or as we've gotten used to uh, over the last standard, having a 5-6 body that does a very similar <laughs> effect. Um, those cards are extremely playable. I think that this card is, is going to be uh, a disappointment. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of them floating around in blue decks early on, uh, but I think overall it's going to underperform. Yeah, you know, and I was being kind of harsh on the card. The card's not the, the my guy was the easiest flop of all time, Charnel Troll, in my opinion. This card is like so close, I think, to being a real card, and it just doesn't make it. And really, it reminds me a lot of Flood of Recollection, and I've gotten a lot of crap for saying that, but Flood That's of Recollection. It's a sorcery. Flood of, I get it, but I don't think it's that different. <laughs> it is. So Flutter Recollection <laughs> is blue, blue, sorcery, return target, instant or sorcery card from your graveyard to your hand. And I get it. Like, not being instant speed is worse, but getting to, like, hold on to stuff matters. I don't know. I I think this card is going to play a lot like Flutter Recollection, which is not be playable. Yeah, I don't think we have to go into a lot of discussion about it. I don't I don't think the card's going to be very good. I want it to be good, though. I'll say that. I want it to All be. All right. Yeah. Speaking of cards that I want to be good, and I'm going to play in Commander, we have Eterata the Silencer. This is two blue-black legendary creature vampire assassin. Arata the Silencer cannot be blocked. She's a 3-5, by the way. 
whenever Errata deals combat damage to a player, exile target creature card, that player controls and put a hit counter on it. Uh, and then exile that card. That player loses the game if they own three or more exile cards with hit counters on them. Errata the... Uh, uh, er, sorry, what? Did I miss... Say something? No, no, no. Okay, Errata's owner shuffles Errata into their library. So... It's a very weird card, and that's all one – like that thing I just read is all one effect. So when a rata hits something, it immediately exiles a creature and puts a hit counter on it that your opponent controls. So it insta-kills a creature. Then if they have three hit counters, they lose the game once you resolve that effect. So you have to hit them, and then it goes through, blah, blah, blah. And then after you hit them, you return this creature from the battlefield to your deck and shuffle. So I have to draw this card – or play a bunch of them. I I think it's a flop. I think it's very cool. And in Commander, it goes back to your command zone, so you always have it. But man, I want and that card's insane and limited. Like it, it's just destroy a creature, which is good enough. But Trey, are, are you disagreeing with this card? Do you because you seem to want to say something before? You think this card might have a chance? I, I so this is on one of my lists, and it is not on the flop list. <laughs> um, oh man. <clears throat> so uh, we'll talk about it a little bit more as well. But I don't know. I mean, I think that this card is one of the hardest cards in the set to evaluate only because it's so weird. There's not really yeah. a comparable effect or card in other magic cards to this. Like, it does a thing that's so unique and so strange that, like, I, I have a hard time kind of trying to figure out where it's at. Uh, but I know that I really uh, am hopeful that it's good. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. I got you. This is like Stump Pen and Teller. Yeah. I understand. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, sure, I, the, my main thing about this card is that it does it can't be blocked, but like it can be countered and killed, and I think that's a real yeah. liability for a way to win the game. That being said, Saffron Olive, baby, against the uh, odds. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't think you would ever want to have a deck where this is the way you're counting on winning the game, uh, but I think there's going to oh. be some weird stuff that happens with this card. Four. Only way to win. Connect. Yeah. <laughs> also, they have to have a creature. If uh, they don't have a creature, it's just a 3-5. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just saying. Just saying. Um, all right. So uh, my next flop is a card that there's been a lot of talk about. There's been a lot of people who are very excited about this card, as people are always excited about this type of effect. And that card is Unmoored Ego. Um, black, I have no idea blue, what this card is. Generic. It's a sorcery card. Uh, and it's choose a card name, search target opponent's graveyard hand and library for up to four cards with that name and exile them. That player shuffles their library, then draws a card for each card exiled from their hand this way. So this is essentially a lost legacy, a pick the brain, a memoricide type card um, that has the unique ability that has never been on those cards before that you can name a basic land um, or name a land really at all. Um, I, these cards are sometimes a necessary evil, right? Like when uh, Approach of the Second Sun was a, a viable standard deck, you know, some decks had to play Lost Legacy because you just couldn't beat those decks. So there will likely be some begrudged uh, unmoored egos that are played if there's a combo type deck like Turbo Fog or something where you have to deal with uh, Nexus of Fates or do something else that you just can't uh, deal with in another way. Uh, but uh, overall, these cards are always worse than they seem that they are. There's always more hype about them than there should be. 
and the fact that this one can name lands is interesting. Uh, I've heard it said that this is the new uh, Death of Tron. Uh, a three mana uh, costed card is is likely never going to be the Death of Tron. Um, it might be for Valakut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like I just don't. I, I think that the hype on this card is way too high, and that it overall is going to be a flop. It will be at best an occasional sideboard card, but it's not anything else. Wrong. This is the best card in the set. Nah, I'm just joking. Card in the set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do I ever lose? If so, here's my plan. I got four mission briefings for whatever that card's name is. Oh, I yeah. just exile all their stuff. Then once they can't yeah. play anything, I'll cast my own spells and counter them to put cards back. No, yeah. but it, 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 now we're talking. That's some that's some old man <laughs> magic stuff right there. Uh, <laughs> no, but with the one thing I'll say about this card, and this is the only thing I'll say about it, is that you can play eight cap in modern. You can play four Jester cap for this. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> now we're doing it. <laughs> yep. Eight, eight cap is also a great name. Oh, so. eight, eight cap's a good name. All right. Uh, I think you're up for starting us off here on the hopeful. All right, yeah. So this category is cards that we're not sure whether or not they're going to be good, but we're hopeful that they are. Um, as I, I kind of alluded to earlier, my first hopeful card uh, is Atrada the Silencer. Um, uh, this card's just so weird, and I want there to be a world where this card is good um, because it just does such a unique thing. Like, I think that a black-blue deck is going to be in for incremental damage. I think it's going to be in for grindy removal spells. And uh, and then having that where it can also just, like, put people possibly in a vice where they're having to spend resources that they don't want to spend in order to try to kill this card when you've got other things going on. I think that's one of the things that's interesting to me about this. And uh, I, I'm not certain it's going to be good, um, but... Uh, I, I'm hopeful that it will be, and plus they're like a buck fifty right now, so I'm in on it. <laughs> oh my god! I, I will say I thought about something when you were talking about the card. It does create an interesting play pattern. Well, interesting is a strong word for it. An interesting play pattern where if your opponent has a powerful creature they want to play on turn five, like a Lyra, and you play this on four, you can just never attack, and you essentially hard lock them out of Lyra. Yeah, it like creates a weird tempo game, right? Like, yeah. they have to, like, take a turn to deal with this instead of, like, deploying their threats because they... Or they have to try to deploy a different threat because of this card being there. Uh, and same and thing. It's a 3-5, so it blocks weirdly well. Yeah, like, I think there's a lot of things with that card that, that it does a lot of things. It does a lot of weird things. But I think that you can, like, dictate your opponent's play pattern in certain ways that make it have a lot of interesting applications. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily it's going to be good, but I, I am hopeful that it is. Yeah, too bad it's in the flop category, so it's not going to make it. Uh, speaking about <laughs> <laughs> speaking of cards that we talked about earlier, I, I'll start here, even though this was my second one, and this is Risk Factor, baby. So this is the browbeat we talked about earlier, the instant speed one with flashback, or jumpstart, sorry. I'm going to restart this conversation here, Trey. This card is interesting because it's a flashback burn spell. That's what makes this card interesting. So the Punisher mechanic, right, is inherently not good in like on the surface for like a competitive standpoint, right? Because mm -hmm. you always get the worst thing. But yes. in a burn deck where it really needs reach and stuff like that, drawing three cards to move towards more more burn isn't bad. Having jumpstart happens, you can discard these extra lands isn't bad. And four damage is a lot of damage. So I think this card has potential, 
only because it has jump start. You know, obviously, if this was, you know, even one in a red and didn't have jump start, it's not close to playable. But the fact is, a lot of times what's happened is, and like, because we've played with this card a little bit, because some of the people who wanted to try it, is they would play it and they would get us down to like seven, right? Like they would get me down to seven. This is, I haven't played this card yet, but I've had been playing against me a lot. I go to seven and then they flash it back on the next turn. And like, if I didn't have a counter spell to exile it originally, right? And I like, I can't interact with it. It becomes very hard to fall to three because there's a lot of reach and like reasonably small haste creatures. So you get down to a low life total. You're really like riding a line along with cards like a Banefire post board, which is like kind of where this card's been, they've been trying it out more. So yeah, I, I think this card has a shot. I'm not sold. It's not like a hit or anything, but I'm very hopeful. I think this is going to be the Punisher card that pushes people over the top and don't sleep on flashback cards that aren't playable are playable when they have flashback. I, I just want to say briefly, I'm not going to belabor the point because I talked about it a lot already. Um, uh, when we talk about flashback burn spells and their playability, I would like to make a reference to Bump in the Night and what a standard Which, all-star it was at the time. It's that all it was modern play okay. for a while. So I don't have to. I don't have to go into more. That's all. Uh, that's my counter argument. There's also seven mana. Counter argument <laughs> is, is Bump in the Night. All right. Uh, so my next hopeful card uh, for those of you who don't know, which is probably most of you. Uh, I have a, an affinity for playing a token deck every now and again. Uh, and so my hopeful card is Divine Visitation, um, which is an enchantment. It's white, white, three generic. If one or more creature tokens would be created under your control, that many four, four white angel creature tokens with flying and vigilance are created instead. Uh, if the environment comes into play where you can take a turn five off to play a card that doesn't do very much on the turn that you play it most likely, this card will take over the game very, very, very quickly from that point forward if you're playing things that generate tokens, which there are a lot of different weird things that incidentally generate tokens that are going to be standard legal. Um, I am very hopeful that this card is good. I don't know whether or not the format's going to be slow enough or or structured in such a way that you're going to be able to afford to play a card like this. Uh, but boy, do I want to. I'm just going to say, the curve of Lean and War Leader, which is the Hero of Bladehold from last set, play this, attack them for 12, is very tempting. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's great. I mean, you get, you know, you're turning cats into angels, but I think it's still... Uh, uh, a lot of fun. Um, yeah, especially if you if you can actually manage to make the mana work in a Boros deck. If you play, like, Legion War Boss into Leon and War Leader into this, like, they're just dead. They're just dead at that time. Yeah. Uh, it it has v a very high ceiling. Yeah, like so the, the ceiling is yeah. so... The problem is you have to take a turn off, and I, like we said, I don't know if you can do that, and it might – it's a thing where I've talked about it where maybe potentially – and obviously this is going very deep, right? But let's say the Azani deck does turn out to be like one of the better decks, right? If you splash white, this is a card you could play in your sideboard. You can bring it in. There's some incidental token makers in that deck already. And then suddenly when you play Azani in the mirror and it makes four angels – and the two, three, that's game. Yeah, but I, I think that Leon and War Leader and those type of things are really an interesting thing to pair with this card because then it's not like you're taking a card, a turn off. It's a thing that you can set up to like get instant value out of the card on the turn when you play it. Like, mm 
mm-hmm. you know, you play it and make two four fours, then like it felt like it did something. It did, um, and I think that's probably going to be the best way to approach building those kind of decks, as opposed to like mm-hmm. all just the pure token makers. Yeah, I agreed. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to say about that card? No, no. I just hope it's great, and I will, I'll probably play it way more than I should. Yeah, we're gonna probably get a little experimental with that dark with that deck. Maybe even a little frenzy. My uh, yeah. next card's experimental frenzy. I think this card <laughs> actually has a shot. Actually, there's a shot in sideboard. So it's three and a red for an enchantment. You may look at the top card of your library at any time. You may play the top card of your library. So that includes land for turn. You cannot play cards from your hand. Three and a red, destroy Experimental Frenzy. This card... So the advances Blasting Cannon, Chandra Torch Defiance, Outpost Siege. We've seen three and a red generate an extra card be very good. Now, Chandra's obviously the best of those. Probably way better than this card. It's an actual threat that takes over the game in other matchups. This card, if you play it as your last card in like a Sly Boros deck or a Mono Red deck, you take over the game so fast. This card's clearly like built to be an Izzet card, like in theory, right? Like, you're like, oh, I can play all these spells and do these things with my Storm Castle card Trey talked about, and it doubles them, and I go off, I draw all my cards. And then it's like, or I can just look at the top card of my deck, play a one drop, play a one drop, play a one drop, play a land. Or like, play an extra land and now look at my top cards of land. Okay, but I saved myself a turn and I'm already top decking. This card out of the sideboard for very cheap, very low to the ground CMC red decks, I think is going to be very good. And I think you're going to very easily double spell with this card a lot. Because the fact that you're allowed to play lands off the top with it means you're not stuck with four lands, which I thought originally was like, oh, you can only ever maybe double spell, right? But the fact that you can move through your lands means this card I think is actually has a shot to be very good. That's all I've got to say yeah, about this card. Do you have anything? Yeah. I think it's really interesting because if it's ever a time that you can't double spell, then it's just like equal rate of drawing a card, right? Yeah, it's essentially just, outpost siege. Right, right. You just, but it's not though because you, you're down the card that you drew, right? So like whatever card you draw for turn is not playable. Like sure. you're building that up to eventually the point where you could destroy this and then play those cards. But like on the turn that you draw, you, that card is down a card, right? And so mm-hmm. you have to be able to play multiple spells off the top of your deck to get ahead on that, or else you're at least you're just at parity where you're digging deeper into your deck, but you're not gaining card advantage. You're you're like gaining equal cards if all you're doing is casting one spell or playing one land. But any any turn when you get to play a land or play a land, cast a spell or double spell then you're pulling farther and farther ahead with this card in, in a really interesting way. And I think that it does snowball, but there are turns, I think, where you will be, like, it not drawing a card, but down a card, as, or, or at least at equal on a card of what it is that you would normally do. I, so I think... Does that make sense? I, I get what you're saying, but I think part of the problem is, is that, okay, if I double spell, I'm okay with, like... So let's take a red deck, for example, right? If I go Fanatical Firebrand, Fanatical Firebrand off the top, and my top card's a Legion Loyalist, right? I can't play because I don't have enough mana. Let's say it's a turn after I play this, right? I'm okay with yeah. not getting to draw, not being able to play that Legion Loyalist until maybe way later in the game because I just double-spelled now, and I'm moving through my deck of, like, not really powerful cards that are trying to tempo my opponent out. And I think a lot of times what's going to actually happen is you're going to play a land off the top, play a spell, play a spell, pass, have a turn where you hit two lands, but you draw one, play one, and then you start double-spelling again. So I think you're going to have a lot of turns where you double spell, no spell, double spell, no spell, and you're going to have the potential to triple and quadruple spell 
if the game goes really long against control. And I think that's going to force them to have like Teferi minus on this card and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And that will be the real trick is against control decks. When they have to answer this card, they then unlock my Legion loyalist. Right. And I didn't do anything. Yeah, I, I think that that's true. I think it's going to be interesting with this card being legal in this at the same time as Flame of Keld, because I think they're going to compete for slots. Like, I don't yeah. think you would play both of them in the same deck, but they would both want to be in the same type of deck. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm curious to see whether or not this has the possibility of, of you know, ousting uh, Flame of Keld for, a, a, you know, that same type of effect. They do very different things, but they feel very, they fill similar roles um in those type of decks for sure i i almost wonder too if maybe it's just like this card's definitely a sideboard or maybe you play like two of these in your sideboard and you just sideboard out two flame of kelds and you have it where it's like sure sometimes my experimental finjury hits flame of Kel and that sucks but i have even more just bombs against these control decks where i need to have these extra cards so yeah, that, that might curious. be a possibility yeah yeah it's not the end of the world to discard your hand and you can't cast the spells anyways. So <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and as long true. as you don't draw too good of spells, and you can always pop it and then next turn hit them with the extra damage. So it's got outs. Yeah. All right, what's your... Uh, wait, actually, you already did your last card for the Hopeful. I correct? did, yeah. We're on to the last category, which is the the top two hits of the set for, for us. All right, I guess I'll start here because we kind of talked about the card already. Azani Thousand Eyes. That's the two black, black, green, green creature that makes all the insects with the undergrowth uh, trigger. I think this card is very good. We've talked about it a lot already, so I don't want to go too deep into it. But I think yeah. this card is very good. And if there's a Golgari deck, I imagine Azani is a thing. And I would not be surprised if this is the pillar of the format. Yeah, card's still great. I still think it's great. Um, yep. Mine I, also would be is... in the same deck. I think it's the card that's been the talk of the set, which is Assassin's Trophy. Uh, which if somehow you don't know what this is yet, it is uh, black, green, instant, destroy target permanent, and opponent controls. Its controller may search their library for a basic land card, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle their library. I, this is quite possibly the best removal spell that's ever been printed. It's I, I don't want to overstate <laughs> it, but, but it really is. It's two mana instant speed vindicate that is... You know, people are going to have to warp the way that decks are built in standard and in multiple formats in order to account for the existence of this card. Every format, um, except maybe vintage. Yeah, except for maybe vintage, because it does cost two mana, but, you know. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, double the going rate. <laughs> yeah, the, the, this card is an absolute uh, bomb. Um, uh, it, it's going to be a staple of the format for as long as it's legal in the format, and it's going to shape uh, eternal formats as well. Uh, it's just yeah. just a hit all the way around. I have nothing to say about that card. I think it's been, you know, yeah. basically everything that could be said has been said. I do have something to say about the next card, which I have dubbed the new unlicensed disintegration. That's <laughs> Ionize. Ionize is one blue-red instant counter-target spell. Ionize does two damage to that spell's controller. The thing about this card is that it looks like there's probably... There's at least a chance for like a blue-red tempo deck where you play cheap creatures and you kind of ride them to victory. And any time where you get under someone and you essentially have like maybe a 2-2 and like a 1-2 or maybe even like another 2-2, right? And you hit them for 4, hit them for 4, and you hold up Ionize, it's like a better unlicensed because it hits the non-creature spells, right? They're like, all right, I have to uh, cleansing over this turn. You're like, Ionize, take 2. It's yeah. like untap, draw, hit you for This four. is a card that makes the, the idea of playing like a blue-red wizard's deck very appealing. 
Um, yeah. Uh, you really want to play a Delver-style uh, aggro tempo deck uh, with this kind of a card. It's very exciting. Yeah, it essentially time walks them and shocks them yeah. all in one card. <laughs> and <laughs> Are you okay, Drew? Well, yeah, we almost made it through an entire thing without you comparing a card to time walk, but we were... Didn't do it. <laughs> oh, weird. You broke up there for a second. That's odd. Well, yeah, because like time walks one blue, right? And shocks red. So they combine them into one card and we got ionize. So, so yeah, like, and the best part about it is it counter, like, while negate has a drawback of only being a counter, like a time walk for non creature spells, this does it for all spells. So it's basically a better time walk. Um, but yeah, it, this, <laughs> this card yeah. is, what's up? If for cancels, if we're going to be stuck playing three mana uh, counter spells, the idea that we're going to get some value that's going to be really meaningful is is really good. Yeah, especially when like an aggressive deck wants to play like a they want to play negates right, and sometimes they might want to play spell pierces and like actual cancel and dissolve type cards as well, or sinister sabotage from this set. But now they have a real one to play that actually fits the game plan much better. So I I expect you're going to get ionized a lot, and you're going to. You're going to lose a lot in the first week to Boros decks and, like, blue-red tempo decks. They go underneath you, and they ionize you out of the game, and you just can't win. Because you're like, I tried yeah. to play my Teferi, but I got ionized, and I got hit for four more, and they just lightning struck me, and I died. Yeah, I, I, so. I agree. I think the card's going to be very good. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I've heard talks about Modern. I'm not there yet. Yeah, I don't know. It's a three-mana counterspell still. Yeah. Um. Uh, my next hit is a card uh, that I, I'm really surprised that I, I, I am as high on it as I am, but it, I really like it. It's a card called Pelt Collector, uh, which is a one green, oh. one one elf warrior. Whenever another creature the... comes in, uh, you control enters the battlefield or dies. If that creature had power that is greater than Pelt Collector's, put a plus one, plus one counter on Pelt Collector. And as long as Pelt Collector has three or more plus one, plus one counters on it, it has trample. Um, you know, I think there is a possibility for there to be some very aggressive decks, and this card can just seem like it's going to get out of hand. Uh, Experiment 1 was a, a very powerful and defining card in the formats when it was around, and the fact that this card triggers not only off of things entering the battlefield, but also dying, and then also gets trampled to, uh, you know, kind of negate the chump bock ability as it starts to grow, uh, I think there's a lot of potential with Pelt Collector. I hate this card, and here's why. <laughs> you, it's so obviously a hit that I knew it was going to put on your list, and you just immediately took all the Johnnies that were listening, and they turned it off. They're like, this guy just wants Assassin's Trophy Pelt Collector. Rare. I'm over here living the good fight with Ionized Johnny. Stay with us. Spikes are going to listen to the podcast anyways, Trey. You don't have to sell them. All right? They're going to listen to at least two before they judge us on iTunes. Why are you doing this to me? I'm, I'm going to cut this. Let's let's pick another card. Can you pick, like, uh, I don't know, some unplayable card? No, but jokes aside, like... This card is very good. The dice trigger is, you know, very on theme for the you know, pelt collector. It's very powerful. And the green stompy deck I thought was going to be very close to playable, but I didn't see enough to put it over the line as a mono green. I figured it'd have to splash. This card makes me think the splash can be very, very light and still be a very good deck. And even just in the Celestia deck that I talked about earlier, it was like flower, right? We were just trying to curve out. If this is your only one drop and you just like play this on turn two right after you flower and then like maybe you play a guild gate or something and then you start curving out real cards this will grow out of hand i think this card is insanely good and a big a big big get for mono green stompy and modern oh yeah absolutely don't sleep on it absolutely 
Um, I, I never thought you know, that I would ever talk positively about so many green cards in my life, but you know, if that's what they're going to print, then I guess that's what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Pelt collector. You're going to see a lot of pelt collector. <laughs> it's very, I, I think it's very good. And if you don't see it now, it's just the way the format broke and we'll see it on rotation. Yeah, absolutely. I think the card's a powerhouse. Yep. Well, that's going to do it for our pick twos. Top 10 cards in the set and a bunch of different categories. I had a lot of fun with it. It's probably the best way to do a top 10 set ever done on a podcast in the history of the world, so that's nice. <laughs> yeah, it's just come out on top, you know, right out of the gates. It's uh, it's a good way to start. Yeah, I think this is actually our last episode, too, now, because we, we peaked. And now that we've redefined the game, we have to let others catch up before we can, like, drop to our second track. You know what I mean? So, yeah. God. Wow. I can't believe we peaked young, but at least we peaked. Yeah. Jeez. It's a lot of bravado right out of the gates. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously. Well, guys and gals, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Even or Odds podcast. Come back next week to roll with us. But now, I want to introduce a little segment we like to call Wow. Okay, with Trey. Hi, everyone. If you haven't heard the big news in Magic this weekend, uh, a Magic good guy and all-around lovable man, Jerry Thompson, decided to protest the state of competitive Magic by sitting out of the largest uh, and uh, uh, you know biggest tournament of the year uh, in Worlds. He decided to sit out, forego his prize money in order to protest the condition of, of competitive magic. And uh, in response to that, Wizards of Coast has issued an official statement. And, and I'm going to go through some of this and we're going to hit the highlights about what it is that's going on. Um, so, you know, Jerry was complaining about uh, uh, what this going on. He was trying to make his voice be heard. And, and Wizards responded by saying, um, that we understand that he's done this and we wish it was not the case. We respect his desire to make his voice heard. Wow. Okay. I'm sorry, wizard dad. I didn't know that I was going to disappoint you by not participating in your event. I know you've had a long day working in whatever type of middle management it is that you do, and you would rather me not do this, but you respect my decision. That's extremely condescending, and I understand. You know, I almost would have preferred you yelled at me as opposed to disappointing dadding me, but it's a good way, I guess, to make a statement. Uh... The Wizards then went on to address uh, uh, some of the uh, direct complaints that he had had. Uh, one of the complaints that Jerry had lodged was that there was a, a problem uh, with the structure of the Pro Tour Club. Uh, but Wizards was quick to remind us that they've already fixed that by adding consultants in order to try to fix that. Wow! Okay, it's almost as if none of the pro players throughout the history of the game have ever said anything that would provide feedback that you could have used to improve the system. But I guess now that you've named some people to improve the system, it's all already taken care of. Wow! Okay! Uh, additionally, he made a comment about the commentators. Their response was very similar in that regard, that they've added Paul Cheon and Simon Gertzen, which have already fixed all of the problems that were there with commentary. Wow. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it's glad to see that they're taking all of this very seriously and that this uh, that this protest was being addressed by the company. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's episode. You can follow Trey at TreyMC on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Mason E. Clark. We're all here all next week.